As the world shuts down amid this terrifying pandemic, it's hard to know what to do, or just simply how to be. I've tried reading news story after news story and scrolling endlessly through Twitter, but neither have left me feeling any more enlightened. The only thing that's proven helpful thus far is actually a 73-year-old novel that's been on my reading list for several years now. I'm talking about Albert Camus' The Plague. Although written during World War II and intended as an allegory for the Nazi occupation of France, this classic novel feels immediately relevant. A disease that spreads from animals to humans wreaks havoc on an unprepared population, one that is too wrapped up in itself and its economic dealings to take the threat seriously at first. Meanwhile, self-interested politicians delay making important decisions. Eventually, when denial no longer works, there are quarantines, supply shortages, fake remedies, issues with masks, and, of course, mounting deaths. If not for the fact that the plague only ravishes a single town instead of the entire world, it would seem almost perfectly prescient. Nevertheless, the novel resonates in other ways, such as with its theme of exile and isolation. Camus actually introduces it even before the plague arrives, as a comment on modern life in general. The quarantines then only make this sense of isolation more acute, something that no doubt feels familiar and will only sink in further once we are fully bored with streaming movies and video chats. Ultimately, as the novel unfolds, Camus shows us that it's possible to break out of this depression, even in a moment of crisis, by depicting a kind of active resistance to the plague that fosters solidarity and compassion with a focus on saving lives. While I'm far from the first to find this classic so insightful and relevant during the rise of the coronavirus, I doubt few have had it near the top of their reading list for as long as me. The reason for that is this very podcast series, City of Refuge, which tells the little-known story of a cluster of French villages on a remote plateau that rescued 5,000 refugees during World War II. All throughout my research, Albert Camus and the plague kept popping up, it was mainly as just a side note, because, as it happens, the famous French-Algerian author wrote much of the novel while living on the plateau in one of those courageous villages. He was, in essence, completely surrounded by people doing everything they could to save the lives of those in need. I was never quite sure how or whether to mention this interesting fact in my series, but now I'm glad I didn't, because it is fully deserving of its own episode. So join me as I finally explore Albert Camus' The Plague and the real-life nonviolent history that ended up shaping its timely and timeless message. From Waging Nonviolence, I'm your host, Brian Farrell, and this is City of Refuge. Albert Camus left his native Algeria in the summer of 1942 with the plan of spending the winter in the mountains of France. He had contracted tuberculosis in both of his lungs, and his doctor prescribed the fresh air as part of his treatment. Camus' wife, Francine, knew of the perfect place, a quiet, sparsely populated plateau in south-central France where she had often vacationed as a child. Once they were settled into a boarding house, only two miles from the village of Le Chambon, the center of the plateau's nonviolent resistance, Camus and his wife enjoyed the rest of their summer together. Then, in the fall, Francine returned to her teaching position in Algeria. Camus soon decided to join her, 
as the war was worsening and getting home seemed like a good idea. But just as he had made plans to hop a steamer back to Algeria, the Allies invaded North Africa. Grey dawn off the French North African port of Oran brings United Nations the best news yet. A gigantic American invasion force is landing. A second front is at hand. It was November 7, 1942, and with the Nazis quickly responding to the invasion by occupying southern France, Camus was now trapped. Days later, in his notebook, he drove the point home further, writing down the phrase, quote, like rats. It isn't surprising he made this analogy. Rats were on his mind a lot in those days. They were the harbinger of death in the novel he had begun working on a year earlier, a novel that would, of course, become the acclaimed La Peste, or The Plague. At this early stage, however, Camus was far from settled on a title. Not only did most of the work lay ahead of him, but the next 14 to 15 months he would spend on the plateau, exposed to its unique culture of resistance and rescue, would have a serious impact on the novel. Interestingly, this fact isn't widely discussed. Many of the biographers assume Camus didn't know anything about what was going on on the plateau. That's Patrick Henry, author of We Only Know Men, the first book to truly explore Camus' time on the plateau. Unfortunately, the biographers of Camus never did what they did the homework. In other words, they weren't in contact with the plateau's local historians and researchers to the degree that he was. In fact, it was thanks to one of those contacts that Patrick was able to interview one of Camus' old friends, a Jewish-French-Algerian named André Choraki, who lived on the plateau during the war. Camus used to go to his house, and they would eat Algerian food and, uh, and talk. He was a specialist on the Bible, and he talked to Camus about the plague and the significance of the plague in the Hebrew Bible. Importantly, André Choraki did clandestine work for the Jewish relief organization known as OZE. This was the same organization, as you might recall from earlier episodes, that Jewish rescuer Madeleine Dreyfus worked with. In fact, after she was arrested, it was Choraki who took over her duties of bringing refugee children to the plateau and hiding them. Knowing this, of course, made Patrick wonder how much Camus knew about the rescue operation being conducted on the plateau. Andre Chiraki, he wrote and told me, of course, Camus knew everything that was going on. In fact, it would have been hard for him to miss. There were actually Jews living in the same boarding house where Camus was living. Given how ubiquitous the rescue operation was on the plateau by this point, the next obvious question was whether or not Camus knew Andre Trocme, the plateau's charismatic pastor who lived in Le Chambon and was one of the driving forces behind the rescue effort. Chiraki said, Albert Camus had always known about the resistance that Pastor Stace and Trocmay conducted in the Chambons, but I don't know if he knew Andre Trocmay personally. Nellie Hewitt, Andre Trocmay's daughter, pretty much confirmed this when I spoke to her. Your parents probably didn't run into Camus, but... No, but they knew of Chouraki. Yeah. Uh, Chouraki knew yeah. of my parents ah, and so forth yeah. and so on, yeah. She also mentioned Pierre Fayol, the Jewish leader of the Plateau's armed resistance. They all were friends, those guys. Fayol visited with my dad. Shuraki visited with my dad, but they had an inner group there of which my dad was not a part. They just knew about each other. And they respected my dad's work. Patrick did some more digging and found that Fayol mentioned Camus in his memoir several times. I looked at his writings. He talked about Camus. They listened to the BBC together. Ici, long. 
This meant that Camus was plugged into all aspects of resistance on the plateau. That said, it's important to note that resistance armies didn't start popping up in France until around the time Camus arrived on the plateau, about midway through the war. The nonviolent resistance of Le Chambon and the surrounding area, on the other hand, had been going on for a couple of years already. Nevertheless, Fayol was respectful of its mission. On the plateau, there was very little killing going on. Trocme and Fayol were working together because they knew that if they attacked the Germans, they would bomb the place or kill people and the whole rescue mission would be destroyed. So there wasn't a great question of violence on the plateau. Realizing that Camus was apprised of these goings-on, Patrick began to see the plague in a new light. Once I got that, then it, it, to me it was like a key to the novel. How, let me read the novel now with everything I know about the Chambon and see what connections I can make. For starters, at just the surface level, there was the obvious allegory to the occupation. In France, the Germans were considered like a plague. La peste brune, the brown plague, the brown shirt, the Nazis. Although the idea of the allegory is well established, it's not always been appreciated by critics. Jean-Paul Sartre and other French thinkers were upset with Camus for comparing Nazism to non-human phenomenon that was out of our control, so to speak. But Camus' plague was a stand-in for more than just fascism. It was also a symbol for what he considered to be, more broadly, our culture of death, which he saw on all sides of the political spectrum, from the wealthy conservative establishment to the revolutionary dictatorships of the left. So, consequently, existential Marxists like Sartre were already primed to take issue with Camus and his novel. Sartre's magazine, Modern Times, they did a book review of it, and they, and they called it Boy Scout morality. They really denigrated it in the, in the worst way. While the Marxists saw Camus as a pacifist, his actual views were a bit more complicated. We'll explore that more in a moment. But first, let's continue to examine the other connections between the plague and the plateau. Namely, how some of the characters in the book resemble real people Camus knew or heard about. Look at that guy, Grand. You know, the, the, the hero in the novel. That's the guy who's, you know, living right next to Camus. Patrick is talking about the character named Joseph Grand and comparing him to Camus' real-life neighbor on the plateau, a man named Emile Grand. We know about this connection thanks to a scene in the 1989 documentary Weapons of the Spirit, where director Pierre Sauvage interviews Emile Grand in front of the boarding house where Camus lived. And that's the name that Camus gives to, this, to the hero of the book, Grand, just a simple person who did the right thing who kept fighting the resistance. Just to be clear, the fictional Grand, a sort of secondary character, isn't exactly the hero of the novel. Camus didn't find that concept appealing, so he has his narrator say that if there were a hero, it would be Grand, because he's just an ordinary man who did the right thing without thinking about it or seeking recognition. Whether the real-life Grand had those qualities is unclear, but it wouldn't be surprising, as they perfectly describe all who helped rescue and shelter refugees on the plateau during the war. Perhaps you'll recall the words of Andre Chokme's wife, Magda, on this point. None of us thought that we were heroes. We were just people trying to do our best. 
In the plague, resistance is depicted through what are called sanitary squads, a sort of civilian-based defense against the death-dealing pathogen. Notably, they are created and organized by a rather idiosyncratic pacifist character named Jean Taru, who shares a few commonalities with Camus himself, aside from the rhyming last name. Camus was against killing. I mean, Camus waged war against the death penalty in France. His father saw uh, an execution and came home and vomited. Camus heard the story about his father, and he tells it in this way. More specifically, it's the character of Taru who tells it. Only, instead of Taru's father witnessing the execution, his father is actually the prosecutor demanding the death penalty. Taru explains that he saw his father's state-sanctioned bloodlust and decided to run away. At first, he joins various leftist struggles against oppression. Eventually, though, he comes to the realization that because these struggles sometimes involved killing to achieve their means, he was fighting against an unjust system without bringing a just one into existence. As a result, Taru exclaims, quote, I had the plague already, long before I came to this town. In short, he's noting Camus' broader use of the plague as a metaphor for humanity's self-destructive qualities. As Camus saw it, there's only one thing you can do with this knowledge. Become what he called a rebel, or someone who stands up for life and solidarity. In the novel, Taru explains his philosophy by saying, quote, There are pestilences and there are victims, and it's up to us so far as possible, not to join forces with the pestilences. Taru is this ideal, total, nonviolent person. At one point in the novel, he lays out his basic formulation of pacifism, saying, I decided to reject everything which directly or indirectly, for good reasons or bad, kills. I definitely refuse to kill. It's such a perfectly stated position. And yet, at the same time, Camus was not an absolute pacifist. For all the nonviolence imagery in the novel, Camus saw violence as both unavoidable and unjustifiable. In fact, here's what he said while writing to a friend nearly a decade after the war. Mm -hmm. I studied the theory of nonviolence and I'm not far from concluding that it represents a truth worthy of being taught by example. But to do so, one would need a greatness that I don't have. So I'm assuming that Camus is saying, yes, nonviolence is fine, but I don't have it. However, he does let his character Taru have it. Taru has the greatness and it links to Trochmei, who believes that one must resist violence, but only with the weapons of the spirit. Nevertheless, Taru has key differences with Andre Trochmei, namely religion. Taru says he wants to become a saint without God. Andre Trochmei, being a Protestant minister, was absolutely a man of God. Importantly, though, his wife Magda was not religious, and therefore, in many ways, embodied this idea of a secular saint. Here's what her daughter Nellie told me. And mother always said that she really didn't believe in God, the God that was usually a he and was, uh, you know, the head of the world and solving all the problems. But she had everything else that made out of her a Christian. All the qualities, all the generosity. So... If Taru was a match for anyone on the plateau at that time, it was almost certainly Magda Trochme. That said, as I mentioned earlier, the Taru character is closer to Camus himself than any other real person. According to the acclaimed theologian and writer Thomas Merton, Camus had a hard time accepting nonviolence because of how much he associated it with Christianity, which he largely rejected and saw as pushing a kind of self-interested, do-nothing type of nonviolence. 
This is unfortunate, Merton argues, because it led Camus to overlook authentic nonviolence, which in many ways mirrors the kind of active resistance he clearly admired. Ultimately, in Merton's assessment, Camus didn't like to offer precise doctrines or absolute formulas. He was quite reasonably, like any woke activist today, not wanting to preach or prescribe from a position of privilege. So, according to Merton, at the risk of seeming inconclusive, Camus does not prescribe a method or tactic. Nevertheless, it's not hard to read between the lines of the plague and see what kind of resistance Camus is getting at. Camus is recognizing the nonviolent struggle for saving human lives, stopping people from getting infected. In fact, the one instance of revolutionary violence that appears in the novel fails to achieve anything. It happens when a few armed men attack the gates of the town, trying to break out. They exchange fire with security forces, leading to a few deaths. This only really succeeds in sparking a wave of looting that, in turn, leads to martial law and executions. But, as Camus notes, there were so many deaths from the plague at this point, nobody cared. They were a, quote, mere drop in the ocean. This isn't to say Camus isn't understanding of the stress and anxiety that led to the violence and lawlessness. We relate to one of his characters, a journalist named Raymond Rambert, who, like Camus, is an outsider, trapped in this place and separated from his wife. Rambert actually tries to escape by securing clearance papers through an illicit underground network, but along the way, he has a change of heart. He finally gets an opportunity to get out of the town, and he says, I belong here. I live here. This is my town. Rambert instead joins the sanitary squads and aids the struggle to defeat the plague. That's what happened to Camus. He tried to get out, and then he didn't go out, and just like the character, he believed that he, he belongs there, and it is his duty to be part of the resistance. In the fall of 1942, after more than a year on the plateau, witnessing active resistance to the Nazi agenda, Camus moved to Paris, where he became co-editor of Combat, the underground resistance newspaper. Even then, however, rescue work remained on his mind. He even tried to help hide a Jewish woman he met. He wrote something to PFAO, a letter saying, I'm sending someone to you who has uh, an hereditary infection, okay? Camus knew what was happening. He was sending a Jew to be protected there in the Chambon. There's one last character in the plague worth exploring, and he's probably the most important, as he's also the novel's narrator. His name is Bernard Rieu, and he is the town's doctor. He is in many ways a different side of the same coin as Taru. What Taru says, he wants to become a saint without God. Rieu says he just wants to be a man. Taru then responds to this exclamation by saying, yes, we're after the same thing, but I'm less ambitious. It's a rather telling bit of self-deprecating humor through which Camus is letting us know that Taru's pursuit of secular sainthood and Ria's pursuit of being a decent person are basically the same thing. However, if there's a difference in the labels, it could be argued that by the end of the novel, it is Taru who becomes a man and Dr. Ria who becomes a saint without God. Whereas Taru gets out of his head a bit and starts living not as an outsider, but in solidarity with his fellow citizens, Dr. Rieu is tested and never comes up short. He just continues to cure the sick and relieve human suffering. Notably, 
he is a healer, a term that Taru seems to equate with the saints. Most importantly though, both characters have no desire to prove anything. And this is the quality that ties them back to the real-life people of the plateau. Weapons of the Spirit director Pierre Sauvage underscored this connection in his film. In words that could have been written about the people he would encounter during his walks, Camus has his narrator say this. For those of our townspeople who were then risking their lives, the decision they had to make was simply whether or not they were in the midst of a plague and whether or not it was necessary to struggle against it. The essential thing was to save the largest number of people from dying. The only way to do this was to fight the plague. There was nothing admirable about this attitude. It was merely logical. Ultimately, it's the message of the plague, not the characters or the type of resistance depicted, that's in sync with what happened on the plateau during the war. When accepting the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1957, a decade after the plague came out, Camus essentially summed up that message, saying he wanted people to, quote, fashion an art of living in times of catastrophe, to be reborn by fighting openly against the death instinct at work in our society. Camus himself, however, did not live much longer. It was only a few years later, in 1960, that he died in a car crash at the age of 47. Despite having accomplished so much at a relatively young age, there are those who think even bigger things were in the works. Camus was going somewhere. This is Patrick Henry again. Some remark Camus was on the road to the religious conversion, but it could have been a conversion to something where he would be able to accept total nonviolence. This is not hard to imagine. After all, as Merton noted, Camus oftentimes spoke like a pacifist and, in practice, came very close to the nonviolent position. Much like ardent pacifist Andre Trochme, Camus spoke out against revenge killings after the Germans had been defeated. He also was one of the first to condemn the bombing of Hiroshima, calling it, quote, the ultimate phase of barbarism in human history. Whether or not he was headed towards some kind of personal conversion to total nonviolence isn't really the point. It merely underscores that Camus was one of the few leading international voices of his time willing to consider its merits. In fact, he reportedly attended a conference on peace and peacemaking in Le Chambon shortly after the war. It was organized by none other than André Trochme and attended by pacifist leaders from around the world. He was sitting in the back of the room and then he made some remark about People getting together to talk about these things is wonderful. What drew Camus to nonviolence, at least the kind practiced on the plateau during the war, is the focus on saving, not harming lives. On the plateau, he recognizes that nonviolence is a great way of saving Jews. The Jews that were saved during the Holocaust were not saved by confronting the Nazis with violence. They always got killed when they did that. They couldn't defeat this machine. In short, Camus saw something special happening on this tiny, isolated plateau where he was stuck for part of the war, and he drew inspiration from it to produce a singular work of art that offers empowering lessons on how to act in moments of crisis. Viewed from our current position in the middle of this pandemic, it's quite simple, really. When you leave it at the level of the micro, it's not mm-hmm. complicated today. We don't have to kill anybody. We just have to, you know, remain decent. Even then, however, the plague is never fully defeated. As Camus' character, Dr. Rieu, 
notes on the final page of the novel, after the city overcomes the outbreak, the plague bacillus never dies or disappears for good. It lies dormant until the day it rouses up its rats again and sends them forth to die in some unsuspecting place. For that reason, we must never forget how to fight it, whether it comes in the form of a pathogen, fascism, or some other cynical destructive force. As the stories of the plateau and the plague tell us, we are going to need solidarity, compassion, and a steadfast commitment to saving lives. In the words of Camus, what's true of all the evils in the world is true of the plague as well. It helps men to rise above themselves. City of Refuge is written, edited, and produced by me, Brian Farrell. Magda Trokme was performed by Ava Isensen. Our theme music and other original songs are by Will Travers. Special thanks to Pierre Sauvage for the clips from his 1989 film, Weapons of the Spirit. I'd like to also extend a belated thank you to the French historians on the plateau whose work has informed this series, namely Gerard Ballon and Anique Flaud. For more information on City of Refuge, please visit wagingnonviolence.org. There, you'll find past episodes, as well as transcripts, photos, and a list of our sources. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please go to the support page on Waging Nonviolence and make a contribution. This podcast is funded entirely by grassroots readers and listener support. Finally, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot to us, and you'll be helping others find the show. So, much thanks, and we'll actually be back soon with at least one more bonus episode.